I am so excited to have on the program with me right now, journalist Soledad O'Brien, award-winning documentarian, author, CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions, somebody who's done so much. She has been an anchor on CNN and MSNBC and NBC, worked in so many media, and of course, on social media, on Twitter, her presence is enormous, and she is telling the truth all the time about the media and what um, they get wrong. And she's very blunt and honest and great in the way she does it. And that's how she approaches all of her work, a new documentary that is really just so uh, powerful. And it's just fantastic. The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, of course, about the great civil rights leader, Rosa Parks, uh, that you can stream on the Peacock Network. And Soledad O'Brien, welcome to the program. I think we're having a mute problem, so maybe you have to unmute. Sorry. There I'm you not are. sure why that... Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, although I have to say now that Twitter's kind of gone crazy, I'm not sure. <laughs> I know. I'm not sure what that future is. Uh, but thank you. Yeah, we're very excited about this documentary, um, mostly uh, because in a nutshell, it's kind of um, everything you thought you knew about Rosa Parks is wrong. And right. Here's the real story. Right. And that, I mean, you do in this documentary what you do all the time, which is tell the real truth because uh, and and there, there's so much that is not you know through our media and culture um really giving the facts in the way that they are and with Rosa Parks people have this idea of this nice middle-aged seamstress who wanted to sit on the bus and and you know sit and sit in the place where she wanted and then you know that's kind of how she became um, uh, mythologized in our culture. But she is someone who is a radical in the black liberation tradition. And she worked very uh, much in the black civil rights movement and is not somebody who comes out of kind of a passive resistance kind of background, but really was uh, very much involved with black liberationists. So talk a little bit about that and how that story just got changed so much. Yeah. You know, I think she's really been framed in this one moment, right? The bus. And in fact, when she died, the New York times uh, called her the accidental matriarch, which is ironic, of course, because there's really absolutely nothing that was accidental about Mrs. Rosa Parks at all. From the time she was a child, she was um, very, very angry at the way black people were being treated and her, her grandfather particularly. And so, you know, even as a kid, she could see very clearly the stark differences in what she was allowed to do and what she was allowed to have and what white kids were allowed to have. So there was no version where it's like one day she just accidentally was tired and her feet hurt and she just sat on the bus and, you know, it's just not accurate. So I, I, I think what we wanted to do in this doc was to both explore what her, what her life was like, the things that she was doing. Mrs. Rosa Parks was sent, she you know worked for the NAACP and was sent to be the person who would take testimony from 
mostly black women who were raped so that they would have, even though they knew they couldn't get justice in the courts, that they would have a record of what happened. I mean, imagine, like, that is so insanely courageous and, and hardcore. But again, I don't think our national narrative of Rosa Parks, you know, would have you think that. So we were very interested, number one, in setting the story straight. Like, just understand, believe me, I was one of the people who would have told you, like, oh, yeah, Rosa Parks, her feet were tired. She often would say, I was no more tired than I was any other workday. What I was tired of was being pushed around, you know, and so that's obviously a very different kind of tired. The other thing that we were interested in exploring was why? Like, why is it so comforting for people to have her be this accidental matriarch? Why is it so comforting to have her be um, a grandmotherly-like figure versus a woman who was extremely hardcore, who, who liked Malcolm X as much as she liked Dr. King, uh, and who really, you know, her and the Black Panthers, and who had a real, you know, sense that all of those groups were, in fact, not in contradiction. We're all moving toward the direction of more rights and more freedom for Black people. So she didn't see it as contradictory at all. Like, why is that comforting for us? Why is that an easy narrative? Even the people who would report on her often would miss the story. And so that was kind of the, the, the twofold you know, way we wanted to look at her story. What's the real story? And, and why do we like this convenient lie? And she would use that in a way or, or, or it was it, it worked to her advantage, I should say, later in life in terms of her civil rights work, um, because it it kind of you know, played well to people, even though she came from that very radical position. Yeah, I think that's true. Although I don't know that she herself, I mean, I think she kept repeating the story. I think she was sometimes frustrated that people were stuck on that other story. Um, And I don't think she ever herself sort of tried to you know, um, wash down, uh, you know, her, the things that she believed in through her life. She was very aggressive in, in what she supported and, and what she gave her time and her energy to. Uh, so I do think that, you know, she was often frustrated. There's a great interview in the doc where a reporter is talking about um, she and her husband had to leave uh, after the bus boycott. She was never able to work again. In fact, they had a a tax bill of, uh, they, they earned $700 one year. That was it. They could not get employment. And so they move on to Detroit. And a reporter is trying to get her to say how much more racist um, Montgomery is than a Detroit. And, and basically she won't do it. You know, she's sort of like, yes, and Detroit is racist too. I mean, she's just so uh, tough. And, and even though her the way she looks seems so frail and delicate. She just was a, a, a beast. She was just hardcore. So I do think it did serve people because they could write in their own head about what they thought. I mean, it's why, you know, we know when it was um, George Bush who was the one who wanted to honor her. She would be the first woman who would lay in state in, and when people, would, you know, when she died. And so, and, and of course there's a statue uh, to her, but as they were literally honoring her work, for voting rights for black people, the Supreme Court at the exact same time is undermining voting rights uh, when she died. You know, so I think those kinds of hypocrisies and contradictions, um, you know, she just I, I think Rosa Parks is the kind of person who is very much part of like, let's let's talk about the truth. Let's right. not sugarcoat anybody. Right. And I want to come to that because it's what you were just talking about, because it's very powerful toward the end of uh, the documentary. You also focus in on 
uh, her as a woman and on women in the civil rights movement in general, the enormous work she was doing with the NAACP um, and as she was, as you described, um, speaking to women who had been sexually assaulted, but then also during the boycott, she was organizing, um, you know, how people were going to get around carpools, organizing the carpools, doing all this incredible work, uh, working with people, reaching out to leaders, leaders reaching out to her, like Malcolm X and others. And then, of course, the um, case goes to the Supreme Court. Um, it wasn't actually her case, but the Supreme Court does uh, rule uh, against this, you know, segregation on the buses. The boycott is called off. And you talk about how the men get all the credit. Dr. King yeah. is credited. And she's kind of in the background. And, and she's sort of like a, she's brought out as, you know, somebody who waves at, at events and whatnot. Yeah. And it, I think that was not only the story of Rosa Parks, it was actually the story of many of the women in the civil rights movement. And, you know, I think it's something we see today, right? Like, Whoever is writing the history kind of gets to put themselves in the starring role. Um, what is that? I think it's like an African proverb that says that, you know, the, the lion never gets to dictate how, you know, it's always the hunter's version, not the lion's version of how the hunt went. Uh, and so, you know, it's a good it's a, a good indication of like who actually got to talk about history and who. You know, we see it today in some ways, I think, in, you know, I'm very critical of, of journalists frequently and journalism frequently. And, you know, it's it's who gets to set the narrative uh, and even if it's a wrong narrative. Right. Who, who gets to run with it so that everybody believes a certain poll or everyone believes a certain narrative or everyone believes a story that upon second look, we we all know is just not accurate. You would think that there were no women in the civil rights movement and the few that were there were making sandwiches. If you really, you know, took a look at how they were uh, put front and center at events, they they just weren't. But the reality is, I mean, especially if you look at the bus boycott, though, you know, it was, uh, and all the civil rights movement events were heavily, heavily run by women. And when there was money to be made, right, money in speeches, money after the event, fame, that followed and leverage that followed. Rosa Parks didn't get any of that. And that, you know, was very heavily tied to why she was hurting so hard for money uh, in her, in the wake of the bus boycott. But, you know, but she wasn't the only one. I think we know how many women were just written out of, of history. And it's, again, it's one of the things I like about doing documentaries. I like I like the process of like shoveling people back into the actual facts of the right. story. Make right. some people uncomfortable, so be it. Like whether it's documentaries or just, I don't know, Twitter or anything. Like let's actually go back to the facts. Let's talk about what was said and how it was said and, and what happened at that time. And I, I just find that both very interesting and also very important. Yeah, and, and so illuminating uh, and, and how – it would be often other women lifting her up uh, that that um, march on at the march on Washington that event where Lena Horne um, lifts her mm, up yeah. and 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 you know is there using her power her you know obviously being a celebrity to help up this other woman. 
yeah, you know, exactly. At one point, Lena Horne is sort of like, you know, everybody like that's Rosa Parks, you know, like she's she's supposed to do her momentary hand wave to the crowd, you know, and, and, and she's like, this is ridiculous. You know, know who this legend is. But, you know, imagine if you hadn't had people inserting people back into the narrative. It happens all the time. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things about being a journalist and being a documentarian, right, is part of the process is exactly that. Like, so who was there? Who was in the room? What happened? Who was responsible? Who was part of this? And, and who took the credit for it? Because often, you know, those are two different groups of people. And in Detroit, after she moved to Detroit, and 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 you look at how, as you described, um, she doesn't have any money, she doesn't have the fame, uh, you know, she's doing the work again uh, as Detroit is engulfed in terrible uh, violence with the National Guard and the military 92nd Airborne uh, coming in, uh, eighty over eighty people killed um, as as protests became violent. Uh, talk a little bit about that and her involvement there. Yeah, I mean, her, her her life in Detroit was was not the end at all. It wasn't the bus boycott. I mean, again, if you if you believe the the narrative we think we know about Rosa Parks, you would think there was a boycott. It ended the end, you know. But actually, Rosa Parks would go on to Detroit. She would if the first time she actually is able to get a job that has uh, health insurance is she's working in John Conyers' office. Uh, and at one point, she actually tried to push back and get him to pay her less <laughs> um, because she felt like she she wanted to make sure he wasn't overpaying her. Uh, but she was, again, at her own insistence, heavily involved in making sure she was fighting for rights and access. There was a dispute over uh, park space and she was front and center. And and, you know, he would describe uh, many people actually would describe her when she was mad and, and talk about like a photo of Rosa Parks mad. Her mad face was a very just to me a solemn face. She didn't look particularly mad, but but you could tell that she was a person who consistently could be mobilized to action to fight for those things that she thought, you know, were important and were right. And in fact, her story hadn't at all ended with the bus boycott. That was probably, that was really the end of her life in Montgomery. But then she went on to a really a, a very radical um, next step as she headed into Detroit. And and I, I, I always, again, think like we just don't tell that story fully. And it was such a good opportunity to sort of talk about, like, who was Rosa Parks and what did she contribute, not just to the bus boycott, which was obviously huge, but to civil rights as a whole. Right. And at at, at an elderly age, uh, in 1994, yeah. she um, fought off this man who broke into her apartment. I mean, she was somebody who was uh, enormous in terms of how she uh, stood up and, and fought back literally, even uh, at that age. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think uh, for those in her later years, when she would, you know, pop back into the news, one of the stories was that, that she had been basically mugged, you know, and uh, and 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 robbed and and she did she she fought back and again it's it's a story that as awful obviously as it is it gives you some insight into the personality of Rosa Parks right I mean at that age to be fighting off a young uh, man who you know who, who had, was attacking her was was just remarkable and I think that was the thing that she was just such a remarkable person to have her life story be whittled down into a she was tired and her feet hurt is 
is not just a, a shame. It's a terrible disservice to what she actually did. When she died, uh, it, it, it's it's just enormous what we see in terms of the outpouring. And her mm-hmm. body is flown to Montgomery, then to Washington, D.C. She lies uh, in honor of the nation's capital, the first woman, first civilian, second African-American. Uh, body's flown back to Detroit as well, right? I mean, it's an enormous outpouring. Yeah, and it's an indication of just how she was loved and revered in a lot of places that believed, you know, that that took her as their own, right? I mean, you don't fly a body back unless there are people there who believe, you know, she needs to come home to be recognized and to be celebrated. Uh, we will do a screening of the doc in Detroit um, because that was her home. And it's an opportunity for us to have a chance to have uh, the relatives of Rosa Parks, you know, sitting on the stage with us and doing, you know, Q&A after the the doc screens to really talk about her life in Detroit and to talk about, you know, who Rosa Parks really was. So, yeah, it was it was an indication of just, again, you know, how wildly popular and famous she was and yet how little people actually knew about what she did. It's The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks on Peacock. You can stream it and you all have to watch it. I I, I really was then, then just totally blown away as we, you know, move past the years of her death. And obviously that narrative really sets in. And obviously when you're gone, you don't even have the chance to correct the record, right? And um, in 2013, uh, a statue uh, is erected of her in Congress. Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, oversees it. And and she uses those words. She just wanted to sit down, right? Like, again, putting her into that role of this woman who, you know, she was just like every other woman. She just wanted to sit down. She was a seamstress who worked hard. And as you point out, as that is all happening... The Supreme Court is stripping the Voting Rights Act, which she spent her entire life fighting for. And what she has is a statue and a narrative of being a woman who wouldn't sit down and 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 the Voting Rights Act is chipped away. Right. And that to me is kind of where I often am frustrated in reporting. Right. We like stick to these narratives. They're comfortable. But. You know, but again, even the New York Times in reporting on her, you know, called her the accidental matriarch, you know, in, in telling her story. And you're like, well, actually not accidental. And and please note that the thing she worked for her entire life is being undermined, right, as she's as a statue is being unveiled. Um, like we, we should talk about that. Right. We we shouldn't pretend that the left hand is doing one thing while the right hand is doing the opposite. And it's all fine. Right? We're all fine with it. We should point out the hypocrisy. We should point out the contradiction. And we should call people out when they get it wrong, which people get it wrong a lot. Exactly. I, I wanted to just talk to you a couple of minutes, but you mentioned uh, Twitter and, and, and what is happening. Of course, you have an enormous presence on Twitter and uh, a huge following. And yet we're seeing just the chaos playing out. Uh, with Elon Musk. Talk a little bit about what, what you're seeing and, and feeling right now. Oh, gosh. I, 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 I mean, I just think it's chaotic. But, you know, I think my philosophy on Twitter has long been I tweet for myself. I try to do what I want. I have never tried to get, um, you know, track like how many people follow me and what I, ever. I don't care. And so I 
I, I, I'm trying to keep that same philosophy, right? Like I, this is a free website <laughs> and I will, I will, uh, I will be there as long as it's useful to me. Uh, but obviously, I mean, I, I, I should probably just mute Elon Musk because I find his, a lot of, so much of what he says and posts is so disturbing and just so dismaying and, 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 and sad actually. Right. I mean, it's oh, just yeah. like, it's a sad, sad time uh and and the amount of hatred for people who are gay or lgbtq plus you know like it's just so overt and so and racist and it's just so overt and misogynistic and it's so overt and i i you know and i it's just a very dismaying time i would say you said you know you you just tweet for yourself and uh, that's very liberating, and and you can see it because you speak about the media plainly, and you take to task a lot of these news organizations, the New York Times, and 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 many of them, <laughs> and CNN, and you know uh, where you worked, and um, you know you've you've been there, you worked at those organizations, and we see what's happening once again. Donald Trump is going to run for president. We see everything playing out exactly as it has in the past, and as somebody who worked at those organizations and then seeing how reporters and uh, producers are, you know, engaging and doing their work. Tell me a little bit about what what you see that they're doing and, and how it compared to when, when you were at those networks, what you felt you had to do. Yeah, it was a very different time. I mean, I haven't been at CNN for 10 years, so it's just a whole completely different sort of environmentally not just at cnn per se but just in the in the country as a whole you know i think one thing that i have found just so disturbing is that one there's just no efforts for fact checking anymore right that there's no one who says how do we get it so wrong when it came to to to, to uh, analysis of the, of the polls right what do we get wrong what are we doing wrong and it just seems like there's no there's no version where reporters kind of try to figure out how to do it better as opposed to racing for clicks. A great story that's, you know, that centerpiece today is all about the, the, the wedding of the, I guess, a granddaughter of, uh, of president Biden. Um, you know, oh, and, know, just and, all, so- and just for people listening, all of these reporters who were complaining that they didn't get invited to cover it. And then they found out Vogue had a private shooting. And so, they compared this to the lies that Donald Trump tells. Am I am I am I diminishing at all what what they? No, did? I think that's exactly right. And I think you know, really saying that. I think it, I think it went a step further for some of them who were basically accusing the White House of lying about it. When actually, um, anybody who's you know ever been done a wedding, a pre-wedding shoot, right? You go, you put on your dress, you do a photo shoot, you know, <laughs> they usually, they often will do that in advance of the actual wedding when things are a little more chaotic. And certainly if you're going to be in vogue. So, you know, it, it turns out, in fact, as much as some of those reporters were talking about how, you know, they were scooped or whatever by Vogue, Vogue, in fact, did not go to the wedding. The wedding was not attended by the media, which is what the White House had said. And so, you know, to the idea that for reporters, that is the equivalent, that's lying. I'm putting that in air quotes because that was apparently not a lie that, you know, Vogue, and they said it, by the way, in all the captions, Vogue met, says the date and who shot it. And then the date of the wedding is a couple of days later. Um and you could see who shot that. It was a wedding photographer who had those pictures in Vogue. So, you know, it is, it's this equivalent of something that is so minor, the White House uh, press 
uh, spokesperson said many times, you know, I guess the, the granddaughter and her fiance did, wanted it to be private. It was a private event. Um, yeah, and the, the reporters were just so up in arms about not getting access to it and not going and feeling like that there was some lie that Vogue had been invited to the wedding, which Vogue had not been. Just just craziness when you're thinking about the, right. the very challenges we're in right now. It was absolutely crazy. It was just embarrassing. And then, of course, what they end up doing is the circling of the wagons when the several, mostly it was women journalists that I'd seen. So um, I, I didn't see any of the men who were who were talking about it. You know, but the, the wagons get circled. So there's no one who says, oh, my bad. I didn't realize that Vogue actually had shot it as a fashion spread in advance, right? Like they just they just couldn't say we got it wrong. It was a mistake. We, no one was lying about that. Instead, they like to do the equivalency of the, you know lying about uh, about returning the documents, you know, right, the, right, or at least on to is the exact same as you know, uh, lying about Vogue coming to your house, which again, was not a lie. So it's just messy and small. And I think, again, I'm just so constantly underwhelmed by our political reporting uh, these days at a time when it should be so important. Another, you know, version is at one, I remember Maggie Haberman used to tweet a lot about how, you know, they didn't want to use the word lies for Trump because, you know, they they just did the reporting and, you know, lies was the analysis of it. You know, but now, like now that Trump's not in office, people are, you know, he'll use lies all the time. It's right. just so, again, contradictory and hypocritical. And I I think I think it does so much damage to journalism and press in general, right? I don't think the media is really well trusted. So when you when you consistently have double speak or you're you're you know annoyed about not getting invited to things that honestly you should not be annoyed by, um, I think it just chips away at your credibility constantly. And I, I think that's a really sad thing, actually. And, and I think you hit on the right word when you use the word access, because a friend of mine said, you know, what they're really angry about is they don't have access and they didn't get access to the wedding and they don't have the access to this administration that they were used to, you know, and, and trading favors on with the Trump administration and others. Uh, and, and, and they're angry. It really makes them angry. Yeah, they're very pissed and and very um yeah, very pissed about it. I mean, you could just it's it, that seething kind of comes through every single thing that's posted. But, you know, again, I, I think in the long run, it doesn't hurt the White House. I think it hurts journalism. And I think it hurts these reporters specifically because I think they're, you know, there's no upside. There's no value um, to your career outside right. of making money, but you know, long term to your to your legacy, I guess, in being an access journalist. And for many of them, they are. That's what they are. Soledad, I'm so glad we were able to do this. <laughs> We've been talking about doing this for a while, and I, I'm really glad we were able to talk about some of this as well, in, in, in addition to uh, the really um, terrific uh, documentary as well that everybody thank needs you. to see. So <laughs> thank you uh, for coming on today. Rosa, Park, Rosa Parks was like, uh, the facts matter. The truth of it matters. And she wasn't going to mince words or make herself smaller, even when other people did it to her. So I think that's something to, to live by. You know, I really do. I think she's a real inspiration on that front. Absolutely. Everybody's got to watch it. The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks on Peacock, streaming. Soledad O'Brien, thank you so much for coming on. It today. was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Soledad O'Brien, journalist, executive producer of The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. And of course, follow her at Soledad O'Brien on Twitter.